0: Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU When you sign up for a free trial at therapynotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on the biopsychosocial impact of pain and strategies for prevention and intervention. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes. Today, we're going to review the following effects of pain. We're going to look how it contributes to depression, anxiety, circadian rhythm disruption, grief, and self-esteem problems. We'll explore mitigating and exacerbating factors, which is, you know flowery language for what makes it worse and what makes it better, and identify primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention activities. Now, if you don't remember what the different types of prevention are, don't worry. We're going to define them. Everybody has pain sometimes. You have pain. I have pain. Our clients have pain. Our bodies are incredibly resilient, though. Recognizing that we have pain and seeing it as our body telling us that, hey, Something's a little wrong here. Now, we can have pain from a strained muscle. We can have pain from sleeping the wrong way and have a kink in our neck. We can have pain from something more serious. Part of understanding your pain is understanding your body and paying attention to what the body's trying to tell you. Some pain, like headache pain, can be caused by neck tension and and stress, other pain, headaches can be caused by migraines. And different people, for migraines, for example, will have different triggers for their migraines, which is why it's important for each individual to pay attention to what makes it worse and what makes it better. Helping people define their pain and know their pain can help their care team. And when I say their care team, I mean their doctor, their physical therapist, their pain person, whomever they're working with, a lot of the treatment of pain is not something that we are going to do since we're not prescribers. However, we know that depression and anxiety increase people's perception of pain. It can increase pain itself, and it also lowers the pain threshold through a variety of mechanisms. Our main focus as counselors is understanding that if we can help people address and control their depression and their anxiety... We're helping them take one step toward managing their pain. When we talk to clients about their pain, we need to know if it's acute or chronic. And and we need to be able to define this for people. What does acute mean? Does it Did it happen yesterday or a week ago or a month ago? At what point does it become chronic? And that is kind of up for debate. I usually use the one-month rule. If you've had the same pain for one month, it may be problematic. Um, Stabbing, aching, throbbing, or burning, those are also important things to pay attention to. Uh, If it is a stabbing pain, that is going to mean something different than aching, throbbing, or burning. Helping people be able to describe this to their doctor so they can more effectively communicate what their pain is. If it's stationary, if it's in like their lower back, and it doesn't move, that's important to know. Or if it's in their lower back, but then it radiates down their leg, that's another thing that's important to know. Typically, radiating pain involves more, more nerves, and stationary pains are often more muscular or tendon-oriented. And any numbness that they're experiencing is also important for doctors to know. Prevention. Um, primary prevention prevents the pain from even ever happening. Secondary prevention prevents the pain from getting worse, and tertiary prevention prevents the pain from causing other problems like depression, anxiety, and addiction. In primary prevention, what we're doing is we're just educating people on things that they can do to prevent themselves from from getting hurt. Proper ergonomics is really important, or form, if you will. At work, if you're sitting at a desk, there are, and these hyperlinks will take you to the places that indicate um, or that can show you diagrams of what your workspace should look like, how far away your monitor should be, how high your chair should, should be, all that kind of stuff. We're used to looking at ergonomics in the workplace, but you only use those ergonomics maybe eight hours a day, and that's if you're sitting in your chair the whole time. What about people who work at fast food? And if you look at fast food chains, a lot of times the cashier will be regularly turning to one side, but not the other. And that can contribute to pain. We also want to look at ergonomics at home. What situation do they have when they're sitting, when they're watching TV, when they are, if if they spend a lot of time in the kitchen. One of the things they recommend for people who do a lot of standing is to have cushion mats to help make it a little bit more comfortable and improve posture. Bed ergonomics is really important. How high your pillow is and depending on how you sleep, whether you sleep on your stomach, your back or your side, there are different pillows and different requirements. Basically, you want to keep your spine in its natural position. And again, that's way past the scope of this class today, but you can go online and learn about different ergonomic positions and interventions for people. And then at the gym, I have to put this in here because and, and anytime you're doing any sort of physical activity, there are things you need to do in order to, um, what's the word I'm looking for, maintain your, maintain your posture, go, th- go through ergonomics again. Proper ergonomics is really important at work you know if you are turning to one direction if you have working with somebody who's a landscaper oh my gosh landscapers when they're riding on their riding mowers can do all kinds of vibration um, damage if you will to their spine or when they're bending over and using their weed eater there are a lot of different things we want to look at ergonomics is not just about sitting at a desk home Pay attention at home to your ergonomics. When you're sitting and watching TV, if you are sitting in an odd position, if you're slumped over or if you're hunched or if your neck's pushed forward, then you're probably not in ergonomic alignment. And if you sit there for too long, it's going to cause you problems. In bed, if you are a chest sleeper, a a belly sleeper, a back sleeper, or a side sleeper, there are important differences in your bed ergonomics the pillows that you use um, for, for example if you're a side sleeper they recommend that you have a pillow that goes between your knees to keep your upper hip from rotating forward and throwing your spine out of alignment and then at the gym or when you're doing any sort of physical activity y'all know I live on a farm so there are times when I'm throwing hay bales or I'm shoveling mulch or doing a variety of things that can be hard on your back and if you're not using good form you can get hurt now a lot of people don't live on a farm but at the gym i see people using really poor form and this link if you happen to work out or your client happens to work out it is really important for them to know exactly how they should have their seats set on the different machines or if they're doing free weights what that should look like so they don't hurt themselves if they're trying to work out that's awesome i am really happy they're trying to do things that are good for their body that's also going to increase their serotonin but we don't want them to get hurt exercise move bilaterally like i talked about earlier if somebody is working for example at a fast food place and they're turning to one side constantly to get the orders and put them on the counter then that side is going to get more work than the other side which can contribute to muscle imbalances and pain remember your body is broken into right and left and front and back what you do to one side you need to do to the other so if you are doing um, chest presses or push-ups you need to do something to exercise the back otherwise your front muscles are going to get really tight and your back muscles are going to be Fighting to compensate, which will cause spasming. So you want to have balance between the front and back and the left and right. Same thing with your quadriceps and your hamstrings and your shins and your calves and everything else. If you're not sure about the front and back or the agonist and the antagonist, as they call it, you can go, again, online to somewhere like bodybuilding.com or... Or a lot of gyms will offer a free session with a personal trainer, and you can get schooled up a little bit on those sorts of things. Stretch frequently, obviously, with caution, with medical clearance, yada, yada, yada. When we work out, when we do anything, our muscles you know, can get sore, and it's important to stretch them. But even for people who are sedentary, when you don't move, body part it will start to seize up basically which is you know a very non-clinical term but it's important to encourage people to move move their body um, and and regularly stretch that includes their shoulders their arms their legs their calves in order to prevent pain and stiffness which we notice stiffness more when we stand up Think about if you were, have ever been on a long car ride, and I used to make the trip from Gainesville down to Miami um, at least once a month, and I got to the point where I could do it without stopping. But by the time I got down to Miami, which was five and a half, six hours later, depending on how fast I drove, my body was kind of frozen in that position that you sit in when you're driving and getting out. I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, aching and creaking. And I was eighteen at the point that point. I can only imagine what it would be like now. Encourage people to move. Encourage people to not overtrain. We don't want them to experience pain from exercising. And some people will go to the gym and they'll keep going and keep going, and they overtrain to the point that their muscles just kind of say, I'm, "I'm not recovering fast enough," and they end up causing themselves an injury. Overtraining is somewhat easy to spot if people's, if for weightlifting, if your weights start going down or not going up anymore, and and or if your resting heart rate is five or more beats per minute above what it, quote, normally is for that person. That indicates that the body is in a state of disrepair and it's trying to, to fix itself. Encourage people to gradually increase activity by time, not quantity, in general think about spring cleaning. And, you know, I do this every year and and every year after spring cleaning, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need a vacation because I spend an entire weekend, you know, going through everything and deep cleaning everything and bending and twisting in ways that, and using muscles that I probably hadn't used since the last spring cleaning. And I'm just, you know, sore all over which, you know, isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. But if you do it to the point where you're in agony, that's also not good. Instead of saying, I need to get the garage cleaned out today, say, I need to spend two hours working on cleaning the garage because the garage may take an hour and a half or it may take nine hours. You don't know. And if you set that two-hour time limit, you do it, you feel pretty good the next day, then extend it. By a certain period of time, generally they say five minutes, but you know five to thirty minutes the next day, so maybe the next day you do two and a half hours and if you feel good the day after that, you can extend it a little bit more until you figure out what your body tolerance is and that 's why it 's important for people to pay attention to their bodies and stop when it starts to hurt and finally with doctor approval, yada, yada. It's good to eat a healthy diet that is filled with omega-3s and anthocyanins. Those are the chemicals that you find in your really dark fruits and berries, and both of those tend to be anti-inflammatory in nature. All of these things people can do to prevent ever experiencing Well, not ever experiencing pain, but to prevent experiencing pain as often. If we take care of our body machine, then it is more able to be adaptive. If we haven't worked out in a long time um, or we have really bad ergonomics, we may be setting ourselves up for injury. Secondary prevention. In secondary prevention, you're preventing the problem from getting worse. So somebody has pain. I injured my back. And so I'll use that as an example today because, you know, I don't have to worry about hipaa Uh, pain interferes with the enjoyment of life when we have pain it keeps us from doing some of the things that we might want to do unless we're taking all kinds of medications and numbing the pain which when i do that i tend to injure myself worse because i'm like well it doesn't hurt so i guess i can do whatever i want and that's not exactly what's supposed to happen we don't want to feel pain all the time Pain management can help improve quality of life, but the first step is diagnosis, helping people figure out what's wrong. What is causing this pain? Is it a disc? Is it a nerve? Is it a muscle? And what can be done about it? which is why all that assessment that we talked about earlier is important so the person can go in and say, here, doc, this is how long it's going on, been going on, this is how bad it is, this is what makes it worse, and that will help the physician or the physical therapist narrow it down to what might be causing the problem. Encourage people to keep a pain log with descriptive language using numerical scales on a scale of one to five. How bad was your pain when you woke up? On a scale of one to five, so they can, again, present it to their doctor instead of going, well, you know, it's it's kind of been hurting a fair amount. If the doctor has something that says it's been hurting a, on the level of a four or a five, six out of every seven days, then he'll have a better idea that this is something that needs to be addressed pretty quickly. Encouraging people, like I said, to know what makes their pain worse, as well as to know what makes their pain better. Everybody's pain is different. Sometimes emotional factors can make their pain worse, especially if we're talking about things like headaches or upper back pain. Those things can be made worse by dysphoric emotions. Also, GI disturbances, um, ulcerative colitis, those sorts of things can be exacerbated by stress and anxiety and anger and that kind of stuff. Mental factors. What kind of mental factors make it worse? Well, if somebody perceives their pain as intractable... And debilitating and the end of the world, then it's going to cause more emotional distress. What physical factors make their pain worse? And there's a lot of things here, but muscle tension can be one. Not getting enough sleep can be another. Working out too hard can be yet another pain. Environmental factors. Now, these are really prominent for um, increasing or mitigating people's pain. The environment can include noises and light. Um, Noises can make people's headaches worse if they're having a lot of headaches. Noise also increases stress in a lot of people, which can increase muscle tension. Certain noises may increase blood pressure. Maybe you live in an apartment complex and your neighbor's um, car alarm goes off every night between 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock midnight and 3 a.m. And every time you hear it, it just makes your blood pressure go through the roof. Oh, so angry. Well, that can contribute to pain. Smells are a big trigger for pain in a lot of people, especially headaches. <clears throat> Other environmental factors include Ergonomics, you know, like we talked about earlier, when, when you're sleeping, when you're sitting, <clears throat> and when you're at work. And social exacerbating factors can be anything that increases distress in people, which, as we know, as distress goes up, pain tolerance goes down. <clears throat> mitigating factors help people feel better. We want to look at emotional mitigating factors. What can you do? Even when you're in pain, that can make you feel a little bit better. That can make you happy. Even when you're in pain, what makes you happy? My back hurts right now. Even though I'm in pain, if I am teaching, if I am watching a funny movie, if I am playing with my animals, it makes me happy. Does it make the pain go away? No. But I can be happy and experience physical pain at the same time. They are not mutually exclusive. Mentally. What factors help me feel better? Well, the way I perceive my pain can definitely help a lot. Physically, going back to those ergonomics again, but also uh, mitigating factors for pain can include heat and ice. If you use one or the other, sometimes one feels better than the other one, that can mitigate pain. You also have things like the massage cushions that you can get or even the vibrating um, massagers can basically bombard the nerves and confuse them so they stop sending the pain signals or they're not sending them as much. And that helps people feel a little bit better. Environmental mitigating factors. You can look for things in your environment, put in um, smells that make make you happier, help reduce your stress. Do things in your environment that don't exacerbate your problem. Right now, you know, I don't want to be bending down into the lower cabinets to get big old pots and pans and stuff when I'm cooking. So environmentally, I can either store them up higher until my back's better, or that's why I had children. I make my kids come to it. But... <clears throat> Figuring out ways to prevent exacerbating your pain is going to be really important. And then social mitigating factors. It's always helpful to have somebody who is emotionally supportive. They're like, yeah, I hear you. It sucks. Been there. Um, but also that can be practically supportive, which goes back to my kids and my family and even my best friend. She's like, well, if you need me to go grocery shopping for you or something, you know, I'm more than happy to do that. <clears throat> Um, having people that are there to help you so you don't keep exacerbating that pain. You know, when you have a back injury or a leg injury, it's hard to get around. And a lot of the stuff that we have to do, we've got to get around in order to do it. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is another example of things that are a condition that can cause a lot of pain. And there are environmental Modifications that people can make, maybe somebody likes to crochet, and they 've got rheumatoid arthritis, which makes it really hard for them to close their hands. Well, they have these nifty little ergonomic crochet hooks now doesn 't make the pain completely go away, but it 's a whole lot better than it is if you 're trying to hold one of the little tiny crochet hooks in order to map a treatment plan, we need to recognize that pain 's a complex equation. We have whatever is physically causing the pain if there is a physical origin to it. Some pain is somatic, but whatever the the origin of the pain is, we need to figure out what's causing it. Ulcerative colitis and some of your other autoimmune diseases that cause pain are exacerbated by by stress, by environmental factors, by things you eat. We need to figure out what that is. The treatment may involve a team of professionals, including mental health counselor, social worker, physical therapist, medical doctor, nutritionist even. There, there need to be pain therapy goals and a recognition that pain is not going to just go away. We don't eliminate pain completely for anybody. All of us are periodically going to have a headache or sleep the wrong way and have a sore back or a sore neck. Recognize or if you have a persistent issue like rheumatoid arthritis, you know, that's not gonna go away. You may not have, you know, many, if any, Completely pain free days. So, what is a realistic pain therapy goal for you? Reducing the pain to a two on a scale of one to five for, you know, 27 out of 30 days. That's a pretty good improvement. <clears throat> That's what you really need to start negotiating with the patient so they can have a clear idea of where they're going and make sure to treat the cause of the pain. And there could be a multiplicity of causes. For somebody with back pain, we need to look at what's the cause of the pain. Yes, they've got back pain, we can throw muscle relaxant. well, a doctor can throw muscle relaxants and anti-inflammatories at it, and they'll start to feel better. But if the cause of the pain is that they're standing at that cash register and turning to their right all day long and ne- almost never turning to their left, then they're going to continue to make that problem worse, which means that pain's probably not going to Stay away and probably not going to get better. We need to look at how they could adjust their work situation, if at all. But if they can't, well, then when they go home, they need to do some left turning in order to balance out those muscles to make sure that they don't start experiencing pain. Available options for pain, pharmacotherapy, and medical interventions. And this includes everything from your oral medications to your nerve blocks to your implantable devices. Psychosocial interventions include counseling to reduce stress uh, and support groups. And then complementary approaches is pretty much everything else. You have massage, acupressure, and we're going to talk about each one of those things. Some people do well with just one of these approaches, but a lot of people tend to do better with two or more approaches to help them address their pain. Pharmacotherapy is medicine, and it can be over-the-counter or prescription, everything from your Tylenol and your NSAIDs to your your opioids. And like I said, surgery, nerve blocks, implantable devices, other things that you really, um, you know, a pres- uh, Physician would have to do. There are special programs available to assist people who cannot afford their medication. If you have somebody who needs a medication for pain, you know, some people are on gabapentin for, for neuropathic pain and they can't afford it, go to the pharmaceutical company's website, look for the patient assistance program, and find the application for it. If they don't have a patient assistance program for that medication, go to somewhere like GoodRx and see if there's a coupon for it look on the formularies for the different pharmacies in town and see if it's on one of their formularies for the you know 30 days of a medication for $4 or $7, and there are multiple different ways. Generally, you can find most medications in one of those three, there are discounts on, on most medications in one of those three areas. Your th- classes of analgesics or pain meds include your non-opioids. These are your NSAIDs and your Tylenol your opioids, and your adjuvant analgesics. Tylenol and NSAIDs are over-the-counter. That's great. If they work for you, wonderful. They're not something that you're going to be wanting to take for a long period of time. They can cause stomach problems. Some people, it causes gastric bleeding. You know, they need to talk with their doctor about what medication they're taking, how much, and for how long. Opioids provide relief by attaching to your opioid receptors, The challenge is the body stops making your natural painkillers, your endogenous opioids, when it's flooded with the prescription drug. It says, oh, you don't need me to do this anymore. No problem. You know, we're getting way more opioid stimulation than we really need anyway. So I'm not going to make any. Over time, the body reduces the amount of opioid being let through because it's overstimulated. And this in opioids occurs after only several days. So we start seeing tolerance build up really quickly. We also see tolerance go away really quickly. So if somebody goes into detox for opioid abuse, they're in there for seven days, they come out. If they use the same amount they were using when they went in, they're likely to put themselves in a coma but I digress. When you stop taking prescription opioids, the body takes a few days to start making the natural opioids again. So pain threshold is markedly decreased, which is why a lot of doctors, if somebody's been on opioids for more than three or four days, um, definitely more than a week, the doctor may titrate them and and slowly wean them off of the opioids. You know, if you've only been on it for two weeks, it's probably going to be a really Really a pretty quick process. If you've been on opioids for two years, it's going to be a a longer process. Your adjuvant analgesics are things other than opioids or NSAIDs and Tylenol. Your corticosteroids like um, prednisone. Your muscle relaxant. When we have muscle pain, it causes muscle spasming. When they give you a muscle relaxant, it helps that muscle stop spasming so the muscle can repair itself. <clears throat> Muscle relaxants aren't super addictive, but a lot of people find that they are very, very drowsy and can hardly function on them. Topical analgesics like your li- lidocaine and your capsaicin and Blue Emu and those things. Local anesthetics can be used. Um, they can give you a shot that gives you a local numbing. <clears throat> and... Drugs for anxiety and depression that affect serotonin, cortisol, GABA, and serotonin can all also help improve people's perception of pain. Uh, When serotonin goes down, pain tolerance goes down. When serotonin goes up, pain tolerance goes up. And obviously, that's only for certain types of serotonin, yada, yada. But your SSRIs have been strongly associated with the reduction of the perception of pain. We've also seen people with clinical depression tend to have sort of nonspecific pain and a lower pain threshold, and that's been linked to altered functioning of the serotogenic system. Complementary therapies, mind-body interventions, prayer, guided imagery, Pilates, uh, things that can help the body be healthier and help reduce that HPA axis, uh, activation, your stress response, in order to allow the body to release its own GABA and relaxation chemicals to allow the the muscles to relax and the body to relax so there's less muscle tension and pain. Biologically-based therapies include aromatherapy and dietary supplements and nutrition, eating things that are typically associated with an anti-inflammatory diet. Yes, there is such a thing. And it depends on the person and depends on the type of pain and what's causing it some people with um, irritable bowel syndrome have found relief with an anti-inflammatory diet others have not people with crohn's disease actually didn't seem to show much response to an anti-inflammatory diet unless it didn't include anything with gluten in it and any other sort of grains so we want to make sure that we're not telling people you know, you need to start eating this. That's for a nutritionist to do or their PCP. But know that there are proper nutrition will help the body manage its own pain. Manipulative and body-based methods. Chiropractic care can be really helpful for people if they have something out of alignment that's causing impingement or causing muscle imbalances. I've got scoliosis. So my back looks kind of like a backwards S, which means I've got one side is constantly fighting with the other, one side's stronger than the other, and I'm working to balance that out. But chiropractic care and uh, massage can also be used to help people if they've got muscular or um, spine-related problems that are causing them pain. Massage can help loosen up tight muscles. When we have one muscle that's really, really tight, and one muscle that's not as tight then you may have imbalances that cause you if you have like one side of my neck if it gets tight this shoulder will go up and you know my husband can tell from 50 feet away he's like your neck's tight today i'm like yeah it kind of is and i have to pay attention to my posture but Look at what that does to my spine, to my shoulder, to my neck. And obviously, that's probably going to cause pain because that's not the way your body's supposed to be in alignment. TENS units provide uh, transcutaneous electronic nerve stimulation. You can buy these over the counter now, which is such a blessing. Um, they're little patches, kind of like electrodes that they put on if you do any EEG, but they administer brief little impulses of electricity. And that sounds awesome barbaric but it feels like somebody coming up and just tapping on you it doesn't hurt at all the goal of that is to bombard the nerve endings and confuse them basically so they quit sending those pain signals dry needling is something that's become more prevalent over the past oh i don't know five or ten years and i don't understand a whole lot about it i know my physical therapist uses it thank goodness not on me yet um because i'm terrified of needles but it is, has been shown to help with knots, especially, especially um, deep tissue knots. And physical therapy is, obviously, you're going to a physical therapist who's going to identify all of those muscle imbalances and help you get in alignment because I hurt my back. I have been avoiding going to the doctor, and as a result, now my hip hurts and I've got pain radiating down into my knee. Because I have been walking in a weird position and basically babying that side. A physical therapist can look at that and go, okay, we need to start at the beginning and figure out how to undo all the damage that you've done, which is what they go to school for. Energy therapies, uh, qigong, healing touch, reiki, therapeutic touch, and acupuncture have all been shown to be effective for some people at helping to manage their pain. Again, it may not make the pain go away completely if you've got rheumatoid arthritis. If the, when the person has rheumatoid arthritis, if you can help them reduce their stress response, you're going to help them reduce their systemic inflammation, and you may be able to help them move their focus to something. Guided imagery. And there are a lot of different types of guided imagery, but three of the more common kinds, you can use color imagery. Encourage people to think of a color that they associate with pain, like red, and picture the painful area of their body as red, and then imagine in their mind's eye that red shrinking, fading, or dispersing, so going away. That's one method of doing it. That is focusing on the pain, but encouraging the mind to disperse that pain symbol imagery think about how the pain feels if it feels like a knife sticking in your joint imagine you're pulling the knife out of your joint and throwing it away i had somebody tell me one time that for their upper back pain they imagined angels massaging their back and that helped them feel like they were relaxing and scenic imagery this is a complete 180 instead of focusing on the pain You can imagine a place that's calming using all of your senses. And this is a distraction device. When you focus on how uncomfortable something is, it's likely going to intensify. If you start thinking about something else, then you may not notice it as much, which takes us to altered focus. Instead of focusing on the pain, if you've got a toothache and you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, my tooth hurts, and you focus on how much it's throbbing and how much it hurts, it's going to, you're going to keep your attention on it and you're going to be so acutely aware of every throb and everything that makes it twinge. If you move your focus to something different, then it may make it you're not focusing on it as much, so you may not be as bothered by it. Things you can focus on include a different body part. You know, if your back is what's hurting, well, then focus on your hand or focus on your foot. If You want to, to help you distract your focus. I have a hard time just thinking, oh, let me think about my foot for a minute. But if you take a cold pack, it doesn't have to be an ice pack. If you take cold water and put it in a Ziploc bag and you put it on your knee or your foot, then you're going to notice that. And you're probably not going to be thinking about your back pain as much. Does it mean you're healing your back pain? No. It means you're not thinking about it. And then, you know, I find that when I do that, by the time I'm finished focusing on the cold on my foot, I get up, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to do something. And I've forgotten about the back pain until I turn the wrong way. But it helps me distract my focus. It's sort of akin to what we do in dialectical behavior therapy with distress tolerance and uh, altering your focus. Tertiary interventions. These are the ones that prevent the problem, the pain, from causing secondary problems. We don't want people who are in pain to also start developing addictions to opioids. We don't want people who are in pain to now start developing clinical depression because they feel helpless and hopeless. Pain and chronic illness can cause fatigue, sleep disturbances, a sense of hopelessness and helplessness, and negative thoughts. All of those are symptoms of depression, and a lot of times people will present with, quote, depression. We want to look at why is that. When people are in pain, they often aren't sleeping well because of the pain, not necessarily because of the depression. We want to look and see, is your fatigue caused by, you know, the depression, serotonin imbalances? Is it caused by thyroid imbalances? Is it caused by the opioids you may be taking that it's causing your fatigue? Let's see what might be causing it. The sleep disturbances, you know, What is, why are you waking up? Are you waking up because you're in pain or are you just waking up? And the hopelessness and helplessness, we can help people reframe and embrace what they do have in addition to what they may be losing. We wanna help people use mindfulness to become aware of what makes their pain and their depression better and worse and become mindful of the current moment and help them revel in the glory of the now. You know, look around and focus on what is. Yes, they can be inside their body focusing on that pain and they can have all of their attention there, but what are they missing? What are they missing that their kids are doing, that their dogs are doing, that the birds out on the feeder are doing? Encourage them to practice good sleep hygiene and maintain their circadian rhythms. This will help with cortisol levels. It will help them reduce in- insomnia. It can help them regulate their sleep schedule. Encourage them to identify the things that they can control that are good. You know, what things in your life that are important, that are awesome, can you control? What things are there that you can fill your life with? And encourage them to eat a healthy diet in order to support anti-inflammatory actions, and serotonin functioning. Anxiety is another emotional effect. A lot of times when people have pain, they're worried that it's not going to get better or they're never going to be able to fill in the blank. Uh, And with some things like rheumatoid arthritis that we know tends to be degenerative and so it's going to get worse over time, well, that may be true. However, when they come to uh, treatment, it may not be at the... a point where it has to stay we may be able to help them go backwards a little bit and experience some relief if they just learn about some interventions sometimes people are worried that their condition is getting worse and you know rheumatoid arthritis back pain whatever it is they wake up one day you know yesterday was it three it wasn't great but it wasn't bad today i wake up i'm in excruciating pain oh my gosh something must be wrong you know the pain is spreading or it's getting worse and it's going to be permanent. We want to help people really look at the facts for this and adjust any cognitive distortions and recognize that just like sickness, you know, it'll ebb and flow. You're going to have some days better than others, but eventually your body's trying to recoup itself. And people can have anxiety about the consequences of pain. They may lose their job if they can't do the things that they used to do or do them quickly enough. And even with, reasonable modifications. They may not be able to do that. So they may need to find a different job. They may fear that because of activity changes, that they're going to lose some relationships. They can't go hiking like they used to because, you know, they've got two bad knees and they just, it's too painful to do it anymore. Or they can't go to the gym and run anymore. Uh, One of my doctors has uh, degenerative disc disease and he used to be an avid runner and now he can't he's not supposed to run at all and it's frustrating to him and it costs, causes him some anxiety in terms of thinking about okay well what else might be the next to go and thinking about encouraging people to think about what they have right now and celebrating their functions and not getting ahead of the game yes we can catastrophize until doomsday how likely is it that you're going to lose all function and be in a wheelchair by the time you're 65? Probably pretty unlikely. <clears throat> Interventions for anxiety. Encourage people to avoid caffeine and nicotine, which are known to increase anxiety. Educate th- y- themselves about the disorder and the probability that things are going to get worse. With my back, I know it's muscular. It's probably not going to get worse until unless I go out and do some bonehead thing. If... I had rheumatoid arthritis i would need to um look at what might cause it to get worse and and yes angela i hear what you're saying about chocolate is so hard to give up and i minimize and justify and deny when it comes to chocolate and i say you know what the little smidgen of caffeine that's in chocolate that ain't gonna do problem do me any harm but we really don't want people ingesting 300, 400, 500 milligrams of caffeine, especially in a sitting. Um, And you can get up to that with some of the uh, fancy coffee drinks, but I digress. Encourage people to keep a log of the good and the bad days because when we're having a bad day, sometimes we feel like every day is a bad day. When we have a log, we can look back and we can see, you know, five out of the last seven days were actually pretty good. It's just these last two days have been you know, miserable. <clears throat> and and that's okay. My grandmother used to talk about it and I talk about it. The doctors will say there's no scientific evidence to prove that it exists, but I can tell you, my joints will tell me when there is a cold front coming in. <laughs> and I don't know where it comes from, I don't know why, but it it's pretty um marked and just about any person over the age of, you know, 55 or 60 will generally second that if they've got bad joints somewhere but that helps you keep a log of the good and the bad days and then when you're having bad days you can look for precipitating factors you know when my joints when my arthritis is starting to act up i look and if the cold front's coming in i'm like well yep as soon as that sucker goes out i'll feel fine again practice distress tolerance skills and use the challenging questions worksheet to address anxiety provoking thoughts and that challenging questions worksheet the challenging questions are What are the facts for and against your belief? If you have this belief that, you know, this is going to keep getting worse and by the time I'm 65, I'm going to be bedridden. Okay, well, let's look at that belief. What are the facts for and against it? And a lot of times people are using emotional reasoning. They're afraid that's going to happen, so they're projecting that. When they look at the facts, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, there's not much factual evidence that that's going to happen. They need to look at the probability of it happening. Maybe the facts say, yes, there is a chance that it could degenerate to that point. But what's the probability that for this person with this lifestyle at this age, yada, yada, that they are going to go down that path to the worst case scenario? Most of the time, it's like, you know, a minuscule chance. Those are the... Two biggest questions that you want people to look at. And the third one is Are you using any cognitive distortions? Are you using all or none language? But once they get to facts and probability, that generally helps relieve a lot of people's anxiety. Guilt. Guilt is self anger. When we're guilty, we feel angry at ourselves for not being able to do something. And, you know, when you've got a back injury, I live on a farm there are things that need to be done like harvesting sweet potatoes and we just had a that puppy i showed you in the last class we still have her and we're working on potty training which means i'm regularly bending down and scooping her up and running out the back door going no 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 we don't poop in the house um not good for the back, but the self-anger When you're not able to do all the things that you used to do, when you're not 100%, that can really wear on people because they start to feel guilty for not being who they think they, quote, should be. Instead of recognizing that, you know what, everybody has periods where they're not 100%. That just, that's kind of what makes the world go round. Guilt can cause people to lash out at others and push them away so you don't disappoint them like you're disappointing yourself. Guilt can also cause people to withdraw. Interventions. Encourage people to think about how they would want their child or best friend to feel if they were in this position. So if my daughter had an injury and wasn't able to do all of her chores because, you know, it wasn't good for her recovery, would I be angry at her? Well, no, of course not. So is it fair to assume, in general, that in a healthy support system, If I am injured or sick and can't do 100% of what I usually do, is it fair to assume that those people probably aren't going to be angry with me? Yeah, that's probably fair to assume. So there goes the guilt. You know, I don't have to feel guilty. They're not angry at me. I don't have to be angry at myself. Encourage people to get rid of the shoulds. You know, I should be doing laundry today. I should be mowing the lawn. I should be. No, you do what you can do. Encourage people to focus on the things that they can do. You know, maybe they can't bend over that top loader to get everything out of the washing machine, but they can fold and hang laundry. So there's, a, there's some things they can do, but they may need a little assistance along the way. And decide whether it's worth using your energy to be mad at yourself and the world. Does it do any good to be ticked off that you're injured again or you've got rheumatoid arthritis or, or whatever? No. That's not going to make it go away. And being angry is only going to make the pain worse. And in the case of things like rheumatoid arthritis that are autoimmune, it's going to make the condition worse. Remember with grief, there are stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. We'll take, you know, the person with the the degenerative spinal disease for an example. When he got that diagnosis, my guess is at first he was like, no, that can't be true. And then he moved past denial because he was pretty aware that it was true since, you know, he was a doctor himself. And he got angry. You know, this is no fair. You know, I run, I eat healthy, I take care of myself. This is no fair that now I've got this problem and I've tried to live a healthy life. Okay, get past that, you know, jump through bargaining, move into depression. I can't run anymore. I love running. And, you know, that's a loss to me. And then figure out acceptance you know how do I write that next chapter where I'm not running anymore and for him he became an avid cyclist okay it's not the same as running but he's still outside he's still getting the fresh air he's still able to exercise and stay in shape it's just not running and that for him that's how he moved into his acceptance chapter mindfulness interventions encourage people like we talked about earlier alternate focus stop thinking about the pain and how to relieve it And start thinking about something else, something completely different. Put on a movie. uh, Get up and and do something. Whatever it is, so you're not sitting there thinking about how much pain you're in. Encourage them to use deep relaxation breathing through the pain. If they've got muscle spasms or, or whatever, when we trigger that rest and digest function through deep belly breathing, it actually releases calming neurotransmitters and GABA which is sort of our natural muscle relaxant, and it can help relax some muscle tension. Is it going to stop muscle spasms completely? Probably not ever, but it's going to help. Use distractions and focus on one moment at a time. You know, I can get through this moment. It may feel like this pain is never going to end. I woke up with a ear infection. Um, You know, oh, I don't know a year ago, and I I don't do well with ear infections. It was so incredibly painful, and I was like, I can never make it until 9 a.m. when the doctor's office opens. I am, you know, I am going to die. Yes, I was catastrophizing, but (laughs) focusing on one moment at a time. Okay, I can make it through the next five minutes with this pain. I can make it through five more minutes. All right, I've already made it 30 minutes. I can keep going and focusing on just getting through it. Radical acceptance is another great tool, encouraging people to recognize, and this is one of the things that acceptance and commitment therapy was actually designed around. Life has pain. Pain is inevitable. So we need to learn to live with the pain, and he calls it living in the and. I can have pain and a rich and meaningful life. I can have arthritis and a rich and meaningful life. Can I do everything that I could do when I was 16? No. But... You know, in all fairness, most people who are my age can't do everything that they could do when they were 16. So, you know, I'm still right in there with the mean. Rejecting reality does not change reality. I can reject the fact that I've got arthritis. I can pretend I don't have it, but that doesn't change the fact that it's there. I can pretend I don't have pain, but that doesn't change the fact that it's there. So, when I go to, you know, if I were going to try to ignore it and reject it and go down to the barn and start moving hay for the donkey this afternoon, I would realize really quickly that I'm still in pain and I'm still injured. It doesn't change reality. Changing reality requires first accepting reality. And in pain, that means recognizing that, okay, my body's telling me something's wrong and I'm going to have to fix it somehow or accept that it's not fixable. Pain can't be avoided. It's just going to happen. And refusing to accept reality can keep you stuck in unhappiness, bitterness, anger, sadness, shame, and other painful emotions. If I refuse to accept the reality that I strained my back or I've got arthritis or whatever it is, okay, that's my choice. But that means if I'm refusing to accept it, that means I'm not doing anything to address it or fix it or treat it. If I accept that it exists, then I can say, all right wouldn't choose to have this, but I've accepted it is. How can I improve the next moment? Stress management. Stress causes digestive upset and pain. So that increases pain. And some of your medications for pain will also cause digestive upset and pain. It causes back pain, especially upper back pain, migraines, headaches, and jaw pain. A lot of us, when we get stressed, will clench our teeth, which can contribute to headaches as well as cracked teeth and other things. Interventions for stress, meditation. There are dozens of different types of meditation. There's one for everybody. It just is a matter of figuring out which one works for you. Encourage people to practice the mantra of distract, don't react. When I feel angry, okay, I'm angry. I'll accept it. Let me distract myself until that adrenaline bleeds off a little bit. I can get into my wise mind and make a... Rational choice encourage people to identify their most important values and decide whether stressing over this pain Whatever's causing this pain gets you closer to or further away from your goals and values if I want to be healthy in shape and a good friend and parent does Obsessing about my pain get me closer to that. No, it doesn't does going to my physical therapy appointments get me closer to that Yeah, it does helping people see that address accepting their pain will will allow them to address it and possibly make it better generally it will help make it better which will help them have more happiness and energy to focus on the things that are truly important to them social support loss can happen due to changes in activities from the pain itself you know it just hurts too much to do it exhaustion from not sleeping well or the medications they're taking um, it can re- result in withdrawal Sometimes people get frustrated when they're grieving and they withdraw. Sometimes they never come out of that. Some people have supports who don't understand. Fibromyalgia is one of those examples of a pain a lot of people don't understand because they can't see it. They don't understand it. So it can cause them, the person with the pain to lose some social support from friends who don't understand about fibromyalgia. And sometimes you lose social supports when you've got chronic pain because you just complain about it all the time. And at a certain point, they're like, well, if you're not going to do anything to improve it, I don't know how to help you. And that's all you talk about. We want to help people understand how they're being viewed by their social supports. Encourage people to modify activities that they used to do with their friends You know, instead of going hiking on these mountainous terrains, maybe you go out and go walk on a track or a paved path through a park. Or develop entirely new, mutually enjoyable activities that you can do together. Join a support group and address mood issues. Address cognitive distortions. You know, this is the worst, especially especially catastrophizing and all-or-nothing thinking. And practice radical acceptance and living in the and. Self-esteem is the difference, but between how you feel about the difference between who you want to be and who you are. When we have pain, especially if it's chronic pain and it's something that won't go away, that's often going to alter our functions a little bit, which may alter our perception of ourselves. Encourage people to make a list of the positive things about them. Identify one or two goals that they can work toward. Celebrate the small things. You know, a day without pain or a day with minimal pain is great and encourage them to silence that inner critic that wants to should them all the time. Physical effects of pain, as we've talked about, it can disrupt your circadian rhythms because people in pain may not wanna get out of bed. People in pain may stay inside in the dark all day long or they may sleep too much. Or they may be taking a lot of naps because of the medication. There's a lot of reasons. Encourage people to practice good sleep hygiene by getting out of bed at roughly the same time each morning. Get dressed in day clothes. Don't stay in your jammies. Turn on the lights and sit in front of a window or get outside to get that day clock started. And if they have to take a nap, keep it under 45 minutes to avoid messing up their sleep schedule. Pain is inevitable. Many people struggle with chronic conditions, including TMJ, migraines, depression, fibromyalgia, and nonspecific pain. It impacts your mood, thoughts, behaviors, and relationships. Generally, when you're in pain, you tend to have a negative filter on and tend to be a little bit crankier. Think about Oscar the Grouch. Um, and And, you know, it makes sense, but you don't probably want to stay in that space for very long. Addressing pain will help reduce related anxiety, depression, and anger, and reducing anxiety and depression and anger and HPA axis activation will also reduce systemic inflammation and also typically help improve pain or improve pain thresholds. Okay, a couple of questions that came through. A limit suggestion on caffeine. You know, that really depends on the person. There are some limit suggestions. I think the last one I saw was like 300 milligrams a day, but that that sounds too high to me. Um, If You you can Google that and find out the the limit suggestions for caffeine. Remember, caffeine has a really long half-life, about six hours. So what you're drinking at noon is only halfway-ish out of your system by six, and it doesn't fully get out of your system until about midnight. It varies from person to person, but that's a good rule of thumb. So if you plan on going to sleep at 9 p.m., then you want to probably stop caffeine, heaven forbid, at 9 a.m. in order to make sure that your body is ready to rest. Menopause can have an impact on pain. I did not know that, so thanks for sharing that. Various meditations, you can learn about them. Um, You can obviously search online for them. I also did a course um, a couple of months ago on 13 i think it was 13 different types of meditations if you go to our youtube channel which is youtube.com slash all ceu's education you can find that video and review some of those different meditations that are available and i tried to include in those like i said there's dozens of types out there i tried to include a wide array so people who like the traditional buddhist type meditation there's something there People who prefer an active, movement-oriented orient, meditation um, and an open mind meditation can find things there too. In terms of the anti-inflammatory diet, and I can do you know enti- an entire class on that. That's another one that you can look at online. If you go to oh golly, let's spell anti-inflammatory diet. Whoops, sorry everyone. That link takes you to the uh, National Library of Medicine's database, and it will talk, talks about different uh, peer-reviewed clinical journal articles on anti-inflammatory diets, the effectiveness of them, yada, yada, yada. You can narrow it down even further. When you go to that link, you can click on where it says, on the left side, where it says species humans, so you don't read about the effects on rats, because we're or not rats. And uh, that still leaves you 8,020 results to look at. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash